This morning is the first Sunday of Advent, the first Sunday in the new year of the church, the first Sunday in that season of preparation as we look toward Christmas. And Advent is an ancient season in the history of the church observed at least since the 4th century, originally 40 days before the Feast of Christmas, and now the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And it is one of the ways in which the church is countercultural, because if you've been to Walmart or Lowe's, you will know that around October 20th, Christmas broke out in those places. But here, we are focusing on what this means. In the season of Advent, according to one of the definitions used in the Anglican Church, is a time to lift up your hearts toward heaven to bring our lives into alignment with God's plan and purpose through repentance, and to prepare ourselves by living in readiness for Christ's return in majesty and glory. And we're going to try to unpack a little bit this morning exactly what all that means. But one of the things that it means is that it is a time to reflect If you've ever taken your car to hay tire when it needed alignment, you know that the tires are bumpy and the steering doesn't quite work and you can still kind of get by, but you know something is wrong. And the season of Advent is like that time little thing on your dashboard that lights up and says that your tires need attention. So during the season of Advent, we are to reflect, and we're to reflect not just on that first coming of Jesus' birth as a little baby in the manger in Bethlehem, but also on his coming in glory at the end of the age, that second coming. Advent takes place in this season, which is the darkest time of year, when the days are short, and it is a season in which the readings are full of beautiful imagery about light and darkness. We delve into the great prophets in the Old Testament and John the Baptist who are longing for the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation, who are crying, come Lord Jesus. And we in that same way long for the completion of Christ's kingdom when that day will come when he will ultimately return to reign. There's a wonderful quotation from that great 19th century bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, in which he talks about the fact that our culture is very content to think about Jesus coming as a little baby, but we don't like to think so much about his coming again at the end of the age. Bishop Ryle puts it this way, of all the doctrines of the gospel, the one about which Christians have become most unlike the first Christians and their sense of its true value is the doctrine of Christ's second advent. I am afraid that we should find that we fall woefully short of them in our estimate of its importance, that in our system of doctrine, it is a star of the 15th magnitude, while in theirs it was one of the first. Compared with them in this matter, we slumber and sleep. We have got into a confused habit of speaking of the kingdom of Christ has already set up among us and have shut our eyes to the fact that the devil is still the god of this world and served by the vast majority and that our Lord, though anointed, is not yet set upon his throne. But there is a good time coming which David saw far distant 
when the state of things shall be completely changed, there is a kingdom coming in which holiness shall be the rule, and sin shall have no place at all. Where is the Christian heart that does not long for this state of things to begin? Well, may we take up the last prayer in the book of Revelation and often cry, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And as we look this morning at the gospel text, it is one of those texts that is all about that second coming. And this morning, I want us to note something that is clear in the gospel text, but expanded upon beautifully by that great hymn that we sang as we came in, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. And I would invite you to look at the lyrics to that hymn in your service leaflet. Charles Wesley, the great 18th century evangelical Anglican hymn writer, wrote this hymn, and it is absolutely chock full of scripture and theology, and it is exactly on point theologically about the second coming. And one of the things you will notice that you might have noticed when we're singing, because it's repeated, is that there is a division of opinion about how we react to the return of Christ. There are those who sat at naught and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. So there are those who have rejected Christ for whom Jesus' coming is not good news. On the other hand, there are the others, those who have believed in Jesus, who have been praying and praying for the day of his return. And it says, those dear tokens of his passion still his dazzling body bears, cause of endless exultation to his ransomed worshipers. With what rapture, with what rapture, gaze we on those glorious scars. And that is exactly right. Endless exultation. Because we are those, if we belong to Jesus Christ, who see Advent as that new beginning of that time of coming back and worshiping Jesus and expecting his return and power and glory to rule the world. And in the gospel, we are given three things this morning that we should pay attention and focus on if we would keep an advent that would help us focus toward Jesus. The first of these is signs. And we are a culture that doesn't like this kind of thing because we're very rational But you'll notice that Jesus himself unabashedly begins with talking about signs, signs that are in the sun and moon and stars, signs that are in the heavens that mean something. And it is a different reality than what it may seem. The stars and the firmament are all over the text of Advent. They're in the Old Testament, they are in the New Testament, And Jesus teaches about them all the time. But we in our own culture have sort of obliterated the stars. It's our own version of the Tower of Babel. That when we think about looking at lights now, we think about the lights of the city. We think about the New York City skyline and Manhattan over the river and how beautiful it is. But people until about 150 years ago, when you talked about the beauty of the lights at night, they immediately thought of the firmament, of the vault of heaven, which is echoed in the architecture here with this vault and the angels at the top of the arches. And the idea is that we are under the vault of heaven. 
And this imagery about stars is all over the place in the scriptures. And there was an interesting little meditation about this in Christianity Today recently that I'd like to share with you. It says this, nativity scenes in storybooks and light-up lawn displays are always topped with a telltale twinkling star. It's a sign that from the moment Christ was born, he caught people's attention and drew them to worship. Our obsession with the star phenomenon is somewhat unusual since we modern people rarely look up to study the skies given the glitter that exists today below the horizon. But the movement of stars in the sky attracted attention in the ancient world. Today, stargazing is seen as a quaint activity of a bygone era. But in the ancient world, it was the raw material for calendars and omens, mythologies and agricultures, dreams and divinations. The stars had many uses. Stars had many interpretations. But for ancient peoples, stars were chiefly the greatest reminder that there was purpose in creation. That there was purpose in creation, a purpose that unfolded night after night as they watched the stars trek across the night sky. For ancient people, every 24 hours, they were reminded that this night would fall and there would be this beautiful ordered array in the heavens. And those of you who uh, remember an earlier day in Charleston remember that it used to be easier to see the stars. But we can still, if you go somewhere near water, see those stars up in the heavens. And they are a reminder that God has ordered and created the world. The scriptures tell us the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19 is all about that, as is Psalm 8. And it was even referenced today in our psalm reading this morning. But the problem for so many of us is we've forgotten. And there's a beautiful uh, lecture that was given a couple of years ago at Mere Anglicanism by the great theologian and scholar N.T. Wright, where he talked about the fact that we've forgotten that we live under the vault of heaven. We've started thinking that this world is all that there is. And so our focus is only on this world. And Dr. Wright made very clear that this is a secularist philosophy that we embrace at our peril. He said that secularism has revived the ancient philosophy of Epicureanism by treating God or the gods as very distant and indifferent to man or what happens on earth, conveniently leaving man to run things on his own without interference. The result is to shunt God upstairs and thereby to divide heaven from earth, religion from man, and Jesus from his church. This happens when the church, by thinking and preaching that treats heaven as a place to which we go when we die, fails to understand that living the afterlife is not something apart from this earth. To the contrary, the book of Revelation teaches that heaven, the new Jerusalem, will come down to earth, the faithful will partake in Jesus' rule on earth. Properly read and understood, the arc of Scripture begins and ends with heaven on earth, with God at one with his creation. The church must refuse to separate heaven from earth, God from man. It must celebrate and model the union of the two through his incarnation, death, and resurrection. It must not allow the spatial gap 
the Enlightenment philosophers deliberately created and that secularists have tried to maintain ever since. We need to recover this idea that we are all part of God's creation and God's eternal purpose, and the stars every night are shining with the wonder of that. One of the remarkable things about this is that a secular philosopher, Ralph Waldo Emerson, has said one of the most profound things about the revelation of the skies and the stars that God has ordered. Emerson put it this way, the stars awaken a certain reverence because though always present, they are inaccessible. Seen in the streets of cities, how great they are. If the stars should appear only one night every thousand years, how men would kneel and believe and adore and preserve for many generations the remembrance of the city of God which had been shown them. But every night come out these envoys of beauty and light, the universe with their admonishing smile. So we are reminded that this vault of heaven is an idea we need to recover. The great Christian philosopher Boethius put it this way, that the eternal beauty and order of the vault of heaven is eternal and everlasting and points us to God versus the fleeting beauty that is found in humanity. So first, let us turn our eyes toward the heavens and be reminded of God's eternal purposes. Secondly, as we turn those eyes, let us think both literally and metaphorically about looking up. We live in a culture where we look down. If you were trying to drive around Charleston on Black Friday like I was, you probably had multiple occasions where you almost hit people because they were wandering in the streets looking at their phones and paying no attention to anything else. We live in a culture where we're always busy looking down. We're looking at the work of our hands, we're looking at media, we're scrolling on screens. We are failing to look up. And it is uh, a little bit like that old bumper sticker that says, Jesus is coming, look busy. That's our idea of things. But that is not the Christian point of view about this. The interesting thing is that in our gospel text, there's this amazing verse after Jesus talks about the powers of the heaven being shaken and Jesus coming on the clouds with great glory. And he says this, and then they will see the Son of Man coming when these things begin to take place. Straighten up and raise your heads for your redemption is drawing near. And it's easy to miss this in the midst of all of the cataclysmic things that are happening, but this is great good news. It is one of the most beautiful verses in the gospel. And when you unpack a little bit what it fully means from the Greek, I think you will see this. If you look at the amplified version uh, of the Bible, it renders the verse this way. Now, when these things begin to occur, stand tall, And lift up your heads with joy, because suffering ends as your redemption is drawing near. Let me say that again. Now, when these things begin to occur, stand tall and lift up your heads in joy, because suffering ends as your redemption is drawing near. The 18th century theologian John Gill renders this verse this way. Then look up and lift up your heads. Be cheerful and pleasant. Do not hang down your heads as bulrushes, 
but erect them and put on a cheerful countenance and look upwards from whence your help comes and look out wistfully and intently for your salvation and deliverance are coming. My friends, this is great good news. It is the image of someone who is bowed down with care and guilt and shame, who is shuffling along with a downcast head, and someone literally comes and pushes up the chin and invites them to look in their face. And it is the whole idea that Jesus is the one lifting our countenance toward his, that that sun might shine upon us. And it is beautiful because it is tied in with this idea of redemption. Redemption is what the whole gospel is about. Jesus coming and sacrificing his life on the cross for us and for our salvation. As we say in the creed every week, he has redeemed us. We have an impoverished understanding of redemption. Uh, One little image that always helps me get a hold of how wonderful redemption is, that if you're really old like me and grew up here, you'll remember back in the day at Piggly Wiggly, you used to get greenback stamps every time you bought anything. And if you were like me, you kept those greenback stamps, and there were these little books, and you could paste them, hundreds if not thousands of little stamps, into these books. But the wonderful thing is you would take this pile of ugly, cheap paper, and you could take it and redeem it for something wonderful. I remember getting a record player with greenback stamps, and it was like a miracle. Well, Jesus' redemption puts that record player and greenback stamps to shame. It is the idea that somebody who was in slavery has had their ransom paid. And Jesus uses that language in the Gospels. Charles Wesley uses it in the hymn that we have been ransomed because of who Jesus is. And so as we look toward Advent as that second coming, we are to look up with joyful expectation because Jesus is coming to bring order out of the chaos that is in our culture. In case you've been under a rock for the past few years, there's chaos not just in our country but around the world. Sometimes it seems as though the forces of evil and despair and sickness and disease are triumphing over everything. But the good news of Advent is that it will not always be so, that Christ the Lord returns to reign. Yea, amen, let all adore thee high on thine eternal throne. Savior, take the power and glory and claim the kingdom for thine own. It is great good news. Lastly, we are instructed by Jesus with some very wise advice at the end of this reading. He gives us a parable about the fig tree. And the fig tree is a good old southern tree. Many Charleston gardens have fig trees. But one of the interesting things about a fig tree is it is very clear when it leafs out. Fig trees have big leaves. And so when those leaves come, you know to start looking among them for the fruit. Because if you don't look for it when it's getting ripe, the birds will get all of it before you do. But the other thing about the fig tree is once that fruit has come, the leaves drop pretty quickly. It is a reminder to us to be watchful, to be vigilant, to look for when these things are happening. So it is the idea that we are to focus, as Jesus says, on the things that will endure. Not on the fig tree, not on its fruit, 
but on the thing that Jesus says will last forever. He says, this generation will not pass away, that generation who have heard the gospel, those who are in this now and not yet period, and that Jesus will have the last word, literally. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. My friends, the one thing that is eternal is Jesus himself, that logos, that word of God, and his word, his written word given to us in the scriptures. The word of God is powerful and active as a two-edged sword. And that is one of the reorientations of Advent, to reorient toward what endures, to think about what is the role of the word of God in our lives. And there's this great collect that we just prayed that Thomas Cranmer wrote back in 1549 that to me seems even more relevant today than it was back then. And it is a collect that is assigned for this first Sunday in Advent, the first Sunday in the church year. And in the old tradition of the church, it was commended to be prayed every day during the season of Advent, a practice I would recommend to you. But it's interesting because it is not a passive collect. It starts right off being very proactive. We are told to cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. We are not to put on the armor until we've cast away first. And when I think about this cast away, it's a very proactive, like throwing out something that you don't want anymore. And perhaps the best image for many of us for that right now is that turkey carcass that might still be sitting in your kitchen, putrefying. The turkey is a beautiful thing for the Thanksgiving feast, but after the meat has been removed, it has no value. It is something that is to be cast out. And we are to look at our lives during the season of Advent and see those things that need to be cast out, cast off, to be brought back into alignment by getting rid of all of the things that are hampering us. And we're not just to cast things off, we are to put things on, we are to put on the armor of light, we are to put on the full armor of God described in Ephesians, we are to put on the word of God, the sword of the Spirit. It is so important that we see Advent as a time to lean into that. And one of the great ways to do that is some of the great traditions in the Anglican world for Advent. One of those is doing an Advent devotional, taking the time to stop each day, to reflect, to put God's word into your mind and mouth and heart is a wonderful discipline. And there are a lot of excellent Advent devotionals out there. If you need a recommendation, please talk to one of the clergy. Another thing I would very much commend to you, whether you are single, living on your own, or you're with roommates, or you're in a family, is to make an Advent wreath and to use the old liturgy for that, where you pray the collect for each week, you read scripture prophecy about Christ's coming, and you spend some time in prayer. Having that daily discipline will cause you to be able to see the darkness for what it is, and it will fire your heart with wonder and longing for the joy of what is promised in this Advent season as we look toward the incarnation and toward the second coming. As we close this morning, I would invite you to open your service leaflet and turn back to that first page and look uh, for the collect of the day, actually, which is not on the first page. 
It is on page five, since we're in morning prayer, on page five. And I would invite you as we close this morning to pray this prayer with me. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which thy Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen.